Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company, and we are reading Chapter 18, Part 2. He was equally in demand at large Bible study conferences and in different parts of the world with his amazing knowledge of the Bible. The result of countless hours of patient study, self-tuition in Hebrew and Greek, and notes that filled thousands of loose-leafed sheets. There was a legend, probably not far from the truth, that he could give the reference of every verse in the Bible. And the children who knew him best when he lived at Clarendon School in later years used to love to shoot unexpected texts at him. But they seldom, if ever, succeeded in catching him out, not even the small, golden-haired girl who fixed her forefingers at him and stated solemnly, Thy wife shall be a harlot in the city. And my father replied with equal solemnity, Amos seven seventeen. after which they both relapsed in a state of mutual admiration and glee. Mr. Sanjin, I'd give the world to know the Bible as you do, said a lady to him at the close of a meeting. Ma'am, he replied, that's just what it cost. But he always stressed that the Bible is never an end in itself. It is a path by which you reach Christ and he never considered any study really worthwhile unless it affected one's daily conduct in a practical way. For many years he traveled extensively, and for years in 1920 and the 30s used to visit the States each summer. He was offered the headship of a very well-known Bible college there, and though the prospect greatly attracted him, he felt it was not to be. He was an ever-apparent joy rising from the depths of praise that spilled over in sparkling enjoyment of light's pleasures. Often during the war he would come and take me out from the hospital and not really at home in any red tape atmosphere and probably dreaming of his next sermon he once unconsciously settled in on a seat in an outpatient forbidden by the large notices to the public. This hurried up all starts to an indignation but his beaming innocence disarmed even that lady, and she retired smiling. He was so certain she had come to welcome him to her domain, so cordially delighted to be there. Then he and I would sally forth to the Kew Gardens or for a trip up the Times, and his radiant pleasure in the expedition that would banish for hours all the horror and strain of war, and the wounded and the raided nights, and I would go back feeling strangely refreshed and balanced." How much his letters meant, especially to his children, as they followed us to Lebanon, to Morocco, to Australia, where John was in the Navy. His letters were never long, but strong and pertinent to the needs of the moment. When I was grieving because of my activities had been checked by the government regulations, he wrote, If we look at the government action, we may become bitter. But if we only look at the movement of the hands of our God, our hearts become soft and tender. And we remember that if an under-shepherd is transferred to another piece of work in the factory of our father, the chief shepherd can well care for the little flock. Or to the one who is facing a decision, I am heavily and happily burdened for you. The branching road of your immediate future stretches ahead of you, and you will soon have to make a decision. Till that hour, keep an open mind, hospitable to the truth that comes to you, an open heart ready to entertain the demands of love and an open hand, ready to give and to serve. In 1952, he came and visited me in the mountain town in the cold weather winter and brought me a new oil stove with the inscription stuck on the top. She spreadeth out her hands to the poor, yea, she reaches out her hands to the needy. 
With her new stove, she is not afraid of the snow. Proverbs 31, verses 20 and 21. And now the plane was landing, and I arrived home to find my father over the worst. And apart from a few expeditions in a wheelchair, he was mostly in bed for the last eight months of his life. My parents' home at the time was a flat in Clarendon School in North Wales. They had come to live there when the school moved from Marvel through the kindness of Miss Swain, his sister-in-law, the headmistress of the Clarendon, Clarendon whose love had followed him and the family all down the years and with whom he had the closest possible friendship. For the past three or four years, when he had not been strong enough to travel, he had been a school chaplain and had shared the senior scripture teaching with Mrs. Swain. And many are the letters from parents and girls that testified to the lifelong formative value of those same deep expositions of scripture. Perhaps we shall never fully know all that his spiritual influence and teaching has meant to the young people, wrote one parent. But we do know that he has done much to build up their faith and strengthen them in the following of the Lord. Even the younger children found him extraordinarily approachable. They would sometimes come to him with their small troubles, more often with hot, faded bunches of flowers and little homemade gifts. For his last Christmas, they made him a tiny Christmas tree with presents on it, and he sat proudly in the shade of it for weeks. For a while after I arrived, he rallied and had a time to enjoy the full life's last gifts, his peaceful home, the increasing realization of the love of his friends worldwide, and the gradual dawning in consciousness that he would soon see the Lord. These were some of the ingredients of his deep, tranquil content. In the last few years, he dedicated five of his eight, eight eldest grandchildren, and the last public service he performed was a dedication of Evelyn, aged three weeks, brought by her parents from Coventry for the occasion. The service took place in the sitting room of our home with a few near friends invited. Michael, age four, often came up with John, his father. At weekends, Jampa was Michael's ideal. He was a gentle little boy, and when my father became really ill, Michael would lean his head on his grandfather's pillow and sit quiet as a mouse, keeping silent vigil. In the morning, his first anxious question on awakening would be, Do you think Jampa had a good night? The last months were weary ones. He had a frequent heart attacks and could often draw breath only with oxygen, but he never once complained or lost his sense of humor and was always thinking out little ways of sparing my mother and myself as we nursed him. In spite of the breathlessness, he insisted on praying aloud in loving detail for absent members of the family. He was rejoicing in the hope of seeing his two elders from abroad in July, but when he realized he would probably not be there then, he accepted that too. I've held them in my heart for 40 years. They may be at the other end of the world, but they are here all the time. There were times when the physical struggle swamped all else, but even then his heart was anchored. I feel like a little tug in a great storm, he gasped. I'm fastened to a great ship on ahead, and it's going into port and can't lose its way. When I go in to see the king, it will be the bright, very bright, I'm the happiest man alive. His sons, Oliver and John, who had arrived the previous evening, were both at his bedside with my mother and me when at 2 a.m. he woke, fully alert and mentally clear. He was able to enjoy them both for about five minutes and then relapse into semi-consciousness. The next day, Saturday, May the 11th, 
1957, at 2 p.m., he looked up very steadfastly and stopped breathing. The funeral service took place in the little country chapel of Brotherin, amid the buttercup fields, the few beautiful wreaths and the hundreds of bunches of wildflowers picked by the children who loved him both spoke of resurrection. A great crowd gathered round the grave to sing, How good is the God we adore. When the guests finally separated, there was a wide, bright rainbow spanning the sea. I've never been to such a funeral, remarked an old man from the village. It was a kind of joyful like all the time. Hundreds and hundreds of letters poured in from all over the world, from high and low, old and young. Practically all spoke of the deep, strong goodness that had so attracted them. Many wrote with a sense of real personal grief. For us, the light has gone out, and the world is a poorer place, wrote the secretary of the North African Mission, who loved him like a father. Yet, thank God, the light still shines, and the way is open to all who will follow. I love you. I'm praying for you, and we'll see you tomorrow. We'll be reading Chapter 19, Rwanda. Bye-bye.